Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. We've reached the month of November here on the On The Tape podcast, and what better way to ring in November... Then to have, of course, Dan Nathan, the extraordinarily handsome but very pedestrian in his NFL picks, Danny Moses, the Olympian Porter Collins, and my alter ego, the man who shares extra- the, the very same traits that I do, although we root for different teams, the very handsome Vinny Daniel. All here today on the On The Tape podcast. It's crazy. So I try to, on the car ride in, and sometimes days before, I try to think of a title for the podcast. By the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast, as I mentioned. And I came up with something. Now, bear with me, gentlemen, because I'm sure you all have something to say about this. In 1981, Tom Petty released Hard Promises. That was his album. On that album, the, the song The Waiting, and of course, people say, is the hardest part. And I'm saying to myself, you know... In the environment that we find ourselves in, Vinny, the waiting is the hardest part. And what does that mean? Everybody wants to be that asshole that says, this is the bottom. The bottom is in. Elaine Garzarelli. Or they want to be Mark Haynes 12 or so years ago to call that bottom. But as it turns out, false promises, hard promises. Talk to me about that, Vinny, because I think in this environment right now, given where we are, We're at the part of the cycle where, in fact, the waiting is the hardest part, Vinny. 100% agree. See that? I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) So I'm also going to take you eight years forward to 1989. Please. And I'm going to hum a tune. Okay. Okay. You'll know the band. Danny will know the band. Porter will know the band. He might not like it. I'm going to try. I'm not that good at this. Do your thing. Oh, that's so that's so awful on so many metrics. <laughs> that's so what I'm uh, that's trying Guns to and do. Roses. That's Guns N' Roses. With a little yeah. patience. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Is and that it, Ben? So I'm Thank with you. you. Yeah. 
I think I've been shorting the market tonight. Yes. Is that no, one? Is that like it, Benny? For the people who do okay. not short, trying to get the, for the people who do not short, and this, yep. it's these three clowns, if you're going to go long, exercise some patience. Yeah. It's time. Like, like once again, we, we sound like broken records. I apologize. The Fed told you not now. And every single time the market wants to take a shot at it. How many times do you need to be told not now? So just wait, exercise some patience. And by the way, I think by the time this is done, it might take a while, six months, nine months, sorry, you're going to be able to put a laundry list of names that you're going to love and you're going to want to own for 10, 15 years, but not now. I'll just say this. So we got a kid who's working with us. He's his first job out of college and he just opened his first IRA account and he's 25 years old and he literally is putting money in there that's going to compound tax-free that he will not be able to touch for 40 years. And so when you think about patience, I think it really does depend where you sit. What are your prerogatives? What is your time horizon? What is your risk tolerance? Because listen, I've been as bearish as almost anybody for the last year and a half. And in the last week, I bought some Amazon, some Meta. Today, I bought some Google, or as Guy would call it, the alphabet here. And again, I'm buying a, a portion of a position. Do you know what I'm saying? So when we talk about patience, if you're too patient, you're going to miss the opportunity. And really, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you have to kind of average into things. No one's going to ring the bell at the bottom is the way I would kind of approach that. I would say that people that were waiting for the pivot, Guy, you like this. I think Powell was called for traveling. Ah, That was a lifting of the pivot foot, right? And the funniest thing, not funny, but his obsession with the employment versus anything else now. Now he's moved completely to the employment side of things. But what's interesting was that, and we'll get that number tomorrow, what's interesting is that Mike McKee from Bloomberg, I thought, asked the best question. It was the only time that Powell flinched. He said, so for people out there that, whatever, you can trade three-month bills now, or you can look at the futures where three-month bills will be trading 18 months from now. Powell himself has said, if that's inverted, it means the Fed is probably going to cut, which means the economy is weak. Well, it's not quite inverted, but it's two basis points. So Mike McKee asked him, how do you explain that? He's like, oh, well, yeah, you're right. We do look at that. We So it kind of unmasked, kind of made him a little bit of a hypocrite on that. So I thought that was really interesting. But again, some of the things in this market have been the most obvious setups, to Vinny's point that he made. Like, it was obvious. That, I mean, the market rallied into it. What were you going to get? Were you going to get a cut in rates? Were you going to get 50 basis points? Were you going to get something else? I don't know. But he kept his foot on the gas, obviously. So people were very, very disappointed. The, the thing that bothers me about him, obviously, he's been wrong a lot. The thing that bothers me about Powell the most, he almost like, and I think this hits people the wrong way, he almost glorifies his ability to say, and I just want to reiterate again, we're not stopping. We're not slowing. Let me say again, why do you have to do that? I get it. He wants inflation expectations, but I think he just goes a bit over the top. That's what I got to say. You know what, Porter, I would submit, and listen, there's no bigger critic. I know we share this in common. None of us particularly like the Federal Reserve central banks. And I've said this, I'll say it again for those new listeners. I think the 21st century will be littered with villains. I think on the top of that list are going to be central bankers for the situation that they've collectively put, not only us here in the United States, but the globe in. That's just my view. I'm not suggesting I'm right, but it is my opinion. But I would say, Porter, Vinny said this to me before, and I happen to agree. This Jerome Powell, this iteration of Jerome Powell, I'm giving him an A in terms of his messaging and in terms of him being steadfast to defeat basically what they've been longing for for years, and that is inflation. Come on. I mean, I'm sticking with Danny's grade. F. That's a chasm between an A and an F. Give me the reasons why he's getting an F here. 
He's done everything possibly wrong. The fact that they've had to go four 75-bit increments just shows you how effing bad he was. He's trying to now make up for all the mistakes of the easy money, which at the time, Vincent and I and Danny, I know, were railing against it. What the heck are you doing? You can't do this. It's going to turn into massive inflation. And sure enough, we got it. Now he's trying to be too harsh. But the problem is, is that we have a massive debt problem. The two years at 470. And there's going to be more problems with the deficit than there are inflation. And so he gets an F in my book. I, I think everything. It's, I, I'm as angry as I've been in, in years. Look, can I, can I'm, I I'm push seeding. back a little bit here, guys? And hold on one second. Dan, you, of all people, you had the illustrious Dan Benton Thank you for listening. on this podcast. And he tells you, do not buy, sell technology stocks when estimates are being reduced. And estimates are doing nothing but going down, Dan. I don't know how and why you would want to leg into... What I'm saying right now, Porter, is I'm starting with quarter positions. And let's be frank, I mean, these stocks are down 50%, some of them. And so when you think about an alphabet right here, down literally 45% since February, I think it's discounting further reductions in estimates here. But here's one thing I want to push back on the central bank stuff, because again, I think that these guys have a pretty difficult job. Jerome Powell came in in 2018, and what did he do? He started raising interest rates. That was a good Jerome Powell. Right. Okay. And then what happened is the stock market went down 20%. The globe was in this kind of... It was was in this little bit of a global recession fear at the time, if you recall. I do. He gets browbeat, as you said, from the former president. Yes, you have. And then we have this rip-roaring market in 2019. They never really get back on that tightening policy, but then we have this black swan event. And the only play that they have in their playbook when they have an event like that is to do what they did, is to kind of flood the zone with liquidity. They lowered Fed funds. They started quantitative easing again, all of the above. Now, I think that, let's be clear, in 2021, did they need to continue to buy MBS at $40 billion a month? Okay, so they got that wrong. So the fact is, guys, here they are. You just said the two-year treasuries at 4.7. We got Fed funds that's around 4-ish. That's maybe going to go up to five. It won't get to five. You guys all know that. So at the end of the day, what's so wrong here? In the stock market, the S&P is down 22%. And it was up 28% last year. What's the problem? The problem, Dan, is that to Porter's point, he was unable to identify transitory from non. Yes. So now he's looking at employment and seeing how strong it is. How many layoffs, how many companies have to keep announcing layoffs that are coming, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Lyft, whether it's Stripe, whatever it might be. And he himself, has said he's seen a slowdown. Wells Fargo announces laying off tons of people in their mortgage unit. So what is he waiting for to flow through into the numbers? And my point is that he needs to be more out of the box. He was too in the box in measuring inflation when he let it run and it wasn't transitory. Now he's being too in the box the other way. My feeling is this, and listen, I can be as bearish as I want. I am separating the stock market from what he should be doing. You can go 50. You can say we may take our foot off the gas. Give himself the opportunity. These markets kind of have the soft landing, and I believe he's taking the soft landing completely off the table. And that, that's my point, Dan. My frustration is just not only with the Federal Reserve, which, by the way, gives an F for everything they've done, and it's a whole of government policy. So we're trying to fix labor. The biggest inflation inputs going up are labor Rents and interest rates were too low for too long. But labor and commodities. So labor, we don't have an immigration policy, right? I said this many times before, real immigration has been the lowest in 20 years. And then 
our energy policy is completely backwards. First, we tell them no more fossil fuels, no more fossil fuels. So of course, what happens? Oil goes crazy. And they said, oh, how about we windfall tax you? But all that's going to do is lower production too. So it's like I'm living in a twilight zone. We're trying to hurt ourselves. I'm so crazed at this point because we're doing all the wrong things. F. In so many ways, no, no problem, board. I hear it all day. So it's, this is great. In so many ways, I feel like Jon Snow from Game of Thrones. Was that the linebacker for the Rams? No, Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert, he gets killed, comes back, gets killed. The linebacker back. does? Yeah. He, he's the dude that sits up on the wall uh-huh. worried about the Night King. No one knows the Night King exists. No one believes the Night King exists. Well, let me give you the Night King, and Porter was sort of getting to it. I'll give you numbers. We have $31 trillion of debt. And right now, short-term rates are no less than 3.7 or 4%. Now, that doesn't equate to what we're going to be spending in interest expense next year. But if you wait out a few years, you're talking about $1.3 trillion of money that has to go to service just the debt, which is higher than our defense budget. No one wants to talk about this. That's the Night King that's out there, and he's coming. Again, whenever Porter or I mention this, we get the same thing, and they say to us, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. It doesn't, it's not real. It's fake. That, to me, Danny, that's the biggest issue yep. of not just the Fed getting an F. Forget about the, what Powell did yesterday, but our government getting an F for the last 40 effing years. That's our problem. So, you know, I love the worlddebtclock.org. So we're at $31.2 trillion in debt, right, in this country. So the debt ceiling Wait, is- that's nuts that you just, I just pulled up the World Debt Clock website at the same time you did. Danny has it on his What are we doing? App. We're pulling- Oh, no. <laughs> well, yeah, it's right next to betcostarica.com. But anyway, so the current debt is $31.2 trillion and rising. And if you look at it, you just want to run and hide. But the debt ceiling is $31.4 trillion. So everyone, I bring this up every six months on the podcast. Yeah, whatever. We'll just get through. We'll get through the debt ceiling. Let me just explain what we just saw happen in the UK. All of a sudden, fiscal responsibility, to Vinny's point, comes back in play. To the point you just made about servicing that debt that's out there. We're running trillions of dollars in deficits a year. It doesn't matter. We do have like $600 billion in a cash stockpile that Democrats can use in extraordinary measures and all this stuff. But this is going to come right back to the forefront here, right post the election. And to Vinny's point, when you look at that in a vacuum, that narrative has completely changed with rates being up four, five, six percent and our ability to service that debt. So I believe that's going to be a major theme and an issue going into 2023 for sure that can't be ignored. And Danny, sadly, let's bring it back to markets Mm -hmm. because we've been wonking out on debt and I know a lot of people don't like that. What does that mean in many respects? And I hate it. It makes me vomit. We're getting QE again next year. That is almost, I would put a high probability that that is going to happen. Well, then something really bad is going to happen Vinny, there. what happens at that point, though? Runaway inflation. I mean, I hear you, but that will just exacerbate inflation. All right, so let me if, say, if say a couple things that. here. So I think, listen, call it $32 trillion-ish. The off-balance sheet stuff, I mean, real debt in this country is probably a multiple of that. Forget about that for a second. But no developed economy, at least none that I can find, and I've actually done the work, has been able to recover from a debt-to-GDP ratio north of 120 or so percent. And we're approaching, I think, 150%. Number one, just store that away for a second. And the reasons why I sort of teed Porter up with this thing, giving him an A, is because, to Dan's point, freshman year, 
I thought Jerome Powell was a stud. I'm like, this is the first person in the seat that's got it since Paul Volcker. Then he got browbeat by the Trump administration. He got spooked by the market. Then he got an F, and he continued to get an F. And the reasons why I think they're villains is, you know, maybe villain's too strong a word, but the fact that Hubert's around thinking that they could control something that they had no control over whatsoever. We want inflation. We want inflation. Thinking somehow when they got it, they'd be able to tamp it down is madness. And they're trying to solve the problem that they effing created in the first place. And why are they villains? Because the people that got screwed on the way in with easy money for years are not the wealthy. Those are the ones that sort of, they reveled in it. It's the middle and lower class and the people that get screwed on the way out when inflation is a problem, guess who? Is the middle and lower class. And the fact that they can ask questions on these news shows, are we in a recession, is so effing insulting to people that are not only in a recession, but in the 1920s, 1930s environment, must make people scream at their TV sets because it's, in a word, madness. Hey, Guy. Yes, Danny. So to add to that, savings at an all-time low, Mm -hmm. credit card debt at an all-time high. To your point, the people that should be able to benefit or people can benefit from these higher rates, they don't have money to put in the bank. You know where their money is? Sitting in revolving credit card debt. And so it's a double whammy to your point on the other side. So I'll add that. All right. But they're also not listening to this podcast. They're also maybe not they invested should. in the stock market. I'm just saying, like, I feel a little bit like somebody's got to push back here because a podcast, I mean, guy, you and I are on CNBC every night. We have all these podcasts. We do the market call. These guys are investing at Seawolf. No one spends this much time talking about the honorable Jerome Powell. I'm just saying, like, a lot of wonks on Twitter do, but I kind of unfollowed them and muted them. What I'm saying is, it's like not particularly useful because we all get it. We could find some geniuses that could push back and say, well, what do you want to do? We can't prove counterfactuals, but in the last 25 years, every time we've had some massive issues, financial crisis, the post.com implosion when we had a huge terrorist attack, people were screaming about inflation for 20 years, and it finally happened. And let me just tell you this. What if transitory meant two years? It didn't mean six months. Then who cares? I guess my point is, is like, I love all of you guys. I think I'm maybe serving as an avatar for a large part of our listener who wants to come here and they want to figure out how to deploy capital in the markets and how to make money and how to think about frameworks and stuff that is outside of the Fed. And I will tell you, I think we've done a really good job with that. We've given the 30,000-foot view, and we've given some very granular things to talk about for people to think about. But we bring this up, Vinny, because I think it's important for people to understand Some of the problems that we're facing collectively have been brought forth by people who are supposed to be looking out for us. So let me think about what I did just yesterday and what we do in the Seawolf portfolio. And they're two separate things in many respects. So what I did yesterday was I took some cash, called up my bank, and told them to move it from savings and to ladder it into a one-year treasury and a two-year treasury. One-year treasury, you could get 4.6%. And the two-year treasury, I think I got 4.5%. That's what I would do. I think the best risk-adjusted return right now, you mentioned something that you do not believe the Fed fund's going north of five. I kind of agree with you. So why wouldn't you get four and a half or 4.6% right now? And that gives you the ability to wait, earning yield. This is the first time someone can get yield on savings at, let's call it risk-adjusted. You could be debased and you will be, but at least you get 
risk-free rate of return. That's a pretty high return rate. Well, here's the pushback that people will say, well, wait a second, Vinny, you're not even keeping up with inflation. That's the one thing. And then people will say, well, over time, you mentioned risk-adjusted. If you're in the market over time, you're going to be rewarded for it. So that's the counter of that argument. By the way, I happen to agree with you, but that's what people will say. So, Porter, 22 years from now, okay, when we think about what happened in the first 22 years of this century, okay, and people are thinking about markets and cycles and Fed policy and everything like that, they're going to talk about really four instances where interest rates went lower at the hands of central banks, then they went higher and then they went lower. And then, they, I mean, it, like all the machinations in the middle of this is all going to be, you know what I'm saying in a way? I'm just curious, Porter, how you think about that. Because when Guy says we've done a pretty good job, Guy, you were screaming from the rooftops last November saying that the Fed and Danny was doing the same thing. And I'm sure you guys were doing that over at Seawolf Global Headquarters, that what's about to happen is going to be really bad for risk assets, mm-hmm. right? When the Fed starts to raise interest rates. So we did that. And they're still raising, and they're still kind of emphatic about what they need to do. So you guys are going to have an opportunity to scream from the rooftops again and get the next massive move correct. All the other stuff in between, meeting to meeting, it's a bunch of BS. I go back to what I talked about on the podcast this spring, and I said I was bullish. And Danny (laughs) kind of threw up his hands and stuff like that. I said, no, I'm bullish on energy stocks. And look at what Exxon and Chevron did this quarter. Record profits. And the XLE is flirting with 52-week high. It's outperformed the S&P by 70% since COVID. And all this while Biden has been dumping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and oil is basically bottomed and come back up here. And so I go back to, and I was looking through my father's portfolio the other day, and I couldn't help but look through it. There was not one energy stock. And he's about his plain vanilla portfolio. But that's all over the place. They don't have one energy stock. And a lot of these stocks are 10% dividend yielding stocks. Look, at we own Chesapeake, 11% dividend. And we haven't solved the problem of energy. And we haven't solved that we're not pumping enough energy. If we want to grow this economy, if we want to grow our way out of all this debt, we need fossil fuels to get there, along with everything else. But Again, we're not solving the root problems. We want to lower the cost for all Americans, lower the cost of oil by producing more. But we're not doing that. And so I'm taking advantage of that. And I sit there and buy cheap stocks all day long. I love them. Let me make this actionable because, again, going back to why the people listen in large part. So we have a midterm election coming up on Tuesday. That's right around the corner from when you're listening to this podcast. I would submit, again, just my opinion. I think the next leg in the energy move higher is post-election. Why do I say that? Because a lot of these guys and gals are running on inflation's out of control and we got all those different things. After Tuesday, it doesn't matter because it's another two years before an election. Nobody's running on high energy prices. And at some point, these geniuses are going to have to stock back up the SPR and they'll do it at some price. It ain't going to be here, by the way. So I think energy is waiting for this election to be over. And to your point, Porter, and Vinny, I'm interested in what you have to say. Exxon, Chevron, Conoco collectively now have a market cap north of $1 trillion, all trading within a whisper, if not an all-time high, all still extraordinarily cheap on valuation, 
all still extraordinarily profitable with crude oil trading anywhere between 75 and 90. So if crude goes sideways to slightly high over the next six months, in an environment where people are going to be looking for value, they will find it, in my opinion, in energy stocks that have rallied but have a long way to go. I completely agree with you. So I answered what I was doing in my personal portfolio and Porter answered what we were doing in the Seawolf portfolio. Let, let me dig a little deeper in the Seawolf portfolio because you mentioned the fact that, and Porter mentioned the fact that we need more energy. We need more oil. And our portfolio has somewhat evolved and has expanded to the oil field services names. Now, names that people would know that, that would be CNBC names and the like would be Schlumberger, Halliburton, right? We've gone a little bit deeper and a little bit more smig cap and mid cap because that's where the real value is. I mean, we're finding things there that are two times EBITDA and they went bankrupt three years ago. So the balance sheets are clean. And even some of the names where the balance sheets are not clean, they have so much torque that if we're right on the fundamentals, these things can be doubles and triples because that's what we do in Seawolf, which is really find aggressive things and deploy capital that way. So when you talk about what we've been long, to me, that's where we have been deploying capital on the long side. Yeah. So what I would add to that, and Dan, I think you're right, try to help people make money the way we can. But the problem is the obsession of the everyone has on the Fed. And I think, let me just end with this part before I go to my next point, is that when you own something like Maersk, one of the largest container firms in the world that tells you that things are drastically slowing, you own, maybe you own stock in it. Maybe you're trying to figure out why is there such a disconnect between the slowdown that certain industries are seeing and what the Fed is recognizing or hub group. I'll just say that I think it's important to note just the logic that doesn't tend to pervade across that. Let me just say that. But Dan, I got a question for you because this, the whole Vinnie Porter trade into ExxonMobil occurred when ExxonMobil was kicked out of the Dow Jones for Salesforce. You get these technical opportunities that are once in a lifetime that happen to coincide with a great fundamental entry point. So Dan, on your fact set machine, what is the Dow for the year, the Dow Jones Industrial Average for the year? It's down around like 11 or 12 percent. The Indu. Right, something like that. And Hold on. I, I don't even have, I literally don't even have the Dow, guys. Um, so give me a second. That actually, that actually said a lot right there. No, you're about to get to my point. Dan, while you're looking it up, it's around 11.5% and the S&P is down around 21% year to date. I mean, that's a massive. So we always used to make fun of certain people that would, where's the Dow? Where's the Dow? Or I hear it all the time from people. I have friends that, hey, Danny, what do you think of the market? I'm like, why? It's down. What do I go? No, it's down 500. I'm like, you're looking at the wrong indice. What's interesting, I just want to explain the difference. The Dow Jones Industrial is 30 components and it's price weighted. What does that mean? It's price weighted, not market cap weighted. So guess what? 11% of the Dow is United Healthcare, just because the price of the stock, not the market. And it's been a huge sub 9% year to date. It's been a massive winner, right? Goldman Sachs is 7% of the Dow. Home Depot and McDonald's are 6% of the Dow. So you get these weird opportunities that kind of send mixed messages. I've always used the S&P 500. Investors have used the S&P 500, which is weighted by market value, not price. So I just, I'm using this as a reason to go tell people, stop watching the Dow. That's your headline number. I get it. That's the thing when you're walking through airports that people are going to see. It's more dramatic because it's 32,000, not 3,700. So you get these dramatic moves. But again, I just wanted to highlight that when these guys are talking about, because I know that Exxon got kicked out. Pfizer got kicked out, right? So you have these opportunities. So people should pay attention to those things. So Vinny, you mentioned small mid cap. That's kind of your sweet spot. That's where you guys uncork some value there. When I think of these large integrateds or these large drillers, I say to myself, it's going to be a really hard time to make money in Exxon and Chevron and the XLE from here on out. Let's just say this. Let's just say that you guys are correct, that the Fed's gotten everything wrong and they push our economy into a recession. That is not a soft landing. 
What do you think oil is going to do? And what if you think, Porter, that all of these politicians and everybody who are against drilling and for whatever reason, we go the other way. So we have a weak global economy where demand's low, and then we have a weak political environment for that sort of sea change. Where do you think the large integrators are going? Well, under those circumstances, you're right. They're probably pushing up against it. But there's a wild card here that we should talk about, and that's the potential for China to reopen. And I think if that were to happen, and it's going to coincide, I think, with a lot of things that are happening right now, that to me, again, my opinion, is the next leg. So post-election, China reopen, commodities start to get a little haywire here, and I think that's going to unlock a lot of value. And if you want an actionable trade, and we've talked about this, it was two years ago, around Halloween, when Alibaba was a 320 ish dollar stock. Since that time... The stock just made a six and a half, seven year low, traded with a 58 handle last week. I'll say again, $58. Stock traded over 100 million shares. And what I said then and what I'll say here is that stock, at least eight, maybe 10 times over the last two years, has given you 35 to 50% moves to the upside. And I happen to think we're on the cusp of something like that again. So, There are opportunities out there, but to answer your question, Dan, if China were to reopen in any meaningful way, forget about it. Crude oil is going to go significantly higher, and I think all these big cap integrated names- You know they are going to reopen, right? They're not going to stay closed forever. No, no, I understand I'm, that. I'm, I'm busting Paul's. No, but I mean, it's but, going to be sooner than I think I know, people. but we've no, been but saying Dan, that for a year and a half, and maybe this is a, like an impaired economy going forward in some way, shape, or form. And I look at the XLE, and I say to myself, I'll go back to 2014 highs. I think you have a 10 up, maybe 25, 30 down, upside, downside, risk-reward right here. My point was, Guy, and I don't mean to be glib about it, everybody knows China will reopen at some point. Where's the global well, economy it's interesting. at that point? I think everybody knows that. And that's fine. Is it priced into the market? And I would say absolutely not. People forget that Biden's SPR dumping is adding a million barrels a day that otherwise wouldn't be there. If you look at U.S. production, it's already rolling over. We're coming off the peak of production. You talk about what OPEC's doing. They're cutting back production. And I don't know if they're cutting back production because they want high price or just maybe just maybe Saudi Arabia can't keep up 10 million barrels a day production, which they've undercut their production targets for a long time now, and the rest of OPEC has too. So I would argue, given the amount of CapEx put into the ground, that we can't keep up the same production levels. You know, Vinny and I were just pointing out the other day, if you look at some of these Schlumberger and Baker Hughes, and just look at the size of the balance sheets, go back 10 years, and you look at the asset levels on these balance sheets, and they're down by 30%. And so... If you cut the assets of the people drilling for actual oil all over the world, Schlumberger is a global company, not just a U.S., and you just say that the assets they have are down by 30%, and this is all across the oil field services space, you just can't produce the same amount of oil. And we all know that the shale drillers have a very high decline percentage. Again, it makes me not bullish on the economy. I just think higher oil prices are going to be here for a lot longer than people think they are, right? They're just, there's no silver bullet bringing them back down because we haven't invested the money. It's like doing your work. You put in the work, you get the result. Right here, we haven't put in the work and we're not going to get the result we wanted. Dan, I'm going to answer your question with a question to you. And I think sometimes there's so much the disparity between opinions. 
What's your time frame on the up 10, down 35? Uh, probably in the next like three to six months. That's what I thought. Okay. So our perspective, first off, we haven't bought Exxon or Chevron or any of them because the mid caps mm -hmm. and the small caps have vastly underperformed the big guys because I think what a lot of people are doing right now, big, big money. I mean, those moves in Amazon have been seismic and that money's going somewhere. You could see it's going to J&J, JP Morgan, Exxon, Chevron, and the like. The Smith caps, I won't say they have been left for dead, but they have not moved accordingly. I agree with you. I've been worried about the economy for six months. And so, therefore, so part of that is, is, is in there. It's like Prego, right? Like Prego spaghetti sauce. Part of that's in there. I think it gets a little bit worse over the next six months. So Hold I am a, a little I am you a little say Prego tomato sauce? Yeah, it's in there. Prego tomato sauce. Yeah, I know our... Mothers and grandmothers would never allow Prego to I be. I can't in even any... believe I'm sitting in the same room as you, and you said, "I mean that." It's that... a commercial that came up in my head. Well, that's unfortunate, but please right. continue. Anyway, so my view is, yeah, we do worry about that, but when we look at the next five to ten year cycle in energy, and I think that's what Porter's talking about—the the massive underinvestment, and this includes uranium as well, and it also includes the residual need of coal and where these things have been left. That's where we see the opportunities over the long term. Can these stocks be down 10, 20% and that we've seen that? Yeah, they can. But we would be buyers of that because everyone looks at the demand. It's the supply that really moves the needle long term. And there hasn't been any supply, at least not yet. Yeah. And you know we're looking right now in terms of demand and everybody's waiting for demand to fall off a cliff. And that's the reason why I think crude oil went from 130 down to 75, wherever it is now, it doesn't really matter. People were front-running demand destruction. The problem is we haven't seen it yet. And with each passing day that we don't see it, to me, you just get more incrementally bullish on the underlying commodity. That's just my take. Number two, all the companies that we're talking about, in some ways, the best thing that ever happened to these energy companies was ESG. And it was painful going through it, without question. But it forced these companies to be better at what they do to be more efficient in what they do, to run a tighter ship. And quite frankly, they're getting rewarded for it on the back end. So again, if the commodity price doesn't move, these are just better companies than they were five or so years ago. And Tim Seymour says this, and I've said it as well. ESG aside, the best thing that happened to a lot of these companies is, in fact, the Biden administration. That's not political. That just happens to be fact. I completely agree. And our view, part of the reasons why we got so bullish was the Biden administration and ESG and the initiatives of Larry Fink and everyone in there that has, you were penalized if you invested capital in fossil fuels. Still to this day, you are. It's getting a little bit better. If oil goes lower because of demand destruction, I think the stock market's much more risk on other sectors. And I will also say that if you didn't know what a company did for a living, just put that to a side. You looked at these balance sheets, you looked at these earnings, you looked at EBITDA, you looked at all these things. These companies are quietly turning into environmentally friendly companies. They're making acquisitions into the sector. They're trying to validate at least the use of capital. And so certainly it's hard to be short them, whether you don't want to do it philosophically or whether you think oil is going to come down, that's it. The only thing I would just say is near term, XLE, OAH, if you think about how volatile they've been this year, if you guys are correct about the global economy. These things are great shorts right here. 
for a three to six month time horizon, in my opinion. I couldn't actually think of a better short where so much money, to your point, Vinny, has rotated out of the prior leaders that made up a disproportionate percentage of the S&P. We had five or six stocks that made up 25% of the S&P 500, and we're talking about a sector that makes up, at best, mid-single digits percent of the S&P 500, which has been a disproportionate contributor to S&P earnings, and that's expected to decelerate massively in 2023. So, if we have a recession, a global recession next year, these stocks are the best shorts in the market. Dan, can I, I'm not disagreeing with what the market, I had this conversation with a friend. How much do you think aggregate demand goes down in a recession? I have no idea. Okay. I had a feeling. It's nothing. So, basically, oil demand runs at about 0.55% of nominal GDP. So if nominal GDP is, say, 5% and it goes down to 2%, so you go from a 2.5% increase in demand for energy to, say, a 1-ish increase in demand, the street treats it like aggregate demand is going to go down 30%. That's not what happens. The only time it went down that significantly was during COVID, and that made Mm -hmm. sense because we shut the entire world down. So look, I'm not saying that the stocks can't do what you're saying it can do, We've been talking about recession for six to nine months. I actually think we're probably in a real recession, not a nominal recession. But nevertheless, my perspective is I would be buying into that. The other thing I would say on these names, and just for people who trade these names or invest in these names, I'm a big believer in looking at RSI. I mentioned oil field service names. We own them. We're not selling them. But when the RSIs are north of 70, Porter and I look at each other and say, okay, what are we going to do? And the one thing we do not do is buy. I'm going to comment on that because it's really interesting. Relative strength index for you playing our home game is RSI. Now, you know this, and I know you know this. I'm not stating anything that nobody here, but RSIs can get worked off. So if these stocks were to go sideways for the next, let's say, month, month and a half, that RSI that is overdone to the upside all of a sudden gets worked off and it gets to levels where they become interesting again. So there's that potential as well where the peak RSIs do get worked off in a stock that sort of trades sideways for a period of time. And just like that venerable guest you had on Dan Benton, with regard to tech stocks, you know, you buy them when estimates are going up. I do the same thing in, in all sectors. When estimates are going higher, that's where we fundamentally heat seek to. Our long portfolios consist predominantly of stocks where earnings are going up. And we're short, on the flip side, stocks where earnings are going down. And so... I think it's sometimes you get all caught up in what's the Fed doing, what's oil prices are doing, what's the economy doing. What's that? like if you keep it simple, you know, estimates up, therefore buy, estimates down, therefore sell. And so right, but you're not shorting Amazon, Alphabet, or Meta here, correct? Not those, but we're short a lot of tech stocks. And again, there's one where the relative strength was off the charts relative to some of these other mega cap names where it just seemed to be a lot of people were hiding out there. One large cap stock we've started to short is Home Depot. If you look at housing starts, where they're headed, we're headed to a 2008 to 2011 type housing starts number. And if you start to roll that through what the numbers look like, it's not good, right? And so that's where I think that Powell's making a, a mistake, and he's, yes, he's shutting off inflation, but he's going to really crush 
the economy a lot harder than people think it is. And he made a comment in the, in the press conference that he think that there's not as much of a lag between what the Fed does and what happens in the real market as, as much as it used to be. Again, I, F, I, I disagree with him. Like, it, it's going to hit. It's going to hit with a lag. Yeah, I did that to tee you up for sure. So for you, again, playing our home game, it was this time last year, literally, that Home Depot was making a new all-time high somewhere around 420 or so dollars. As we're sitting here today, it's a $280 stock. Again, not that it matters what it was, just for context, number one. And you think about it, people will say Home Depot is reasonable now on valuation, except that if there is a miss, that valuation, which is cheap, becomes very expensive very quickly. And just to sort of put a button on this energy conversation, although crude oil has gotten whacked, the products haven't. And when I'm talking about products, I'm talking about heating oil. Gasoline did come down, but very quietly, gasoline's back on its horse as well, which does not speak to demand destruction. It speaks to quite the opposite. So crude oil is the headline without question. Products are what drives this entire thing, and products are doing actually very well in this environment. You make an excellent point there. Just when you're driving around on the roads, diesel used to be a lot closer to gasoline. But if you look at the diesel prices, they're a lot higher than gasoline at this point. And it speaks to the refining capacity of the United States. It's just it's not good. You don't get as much diesel out of the light, sweet crude that you do out of the heavy crude. And so just the, the whole supply chains are, are just a lot different than they used to be. So a little uh, inside baseball, you know how we say things that acts well, that doesn't act well? Crude does not act well. Crude's down 30% from its highs in June, and it's basically up, I don't know, 15 or so percent. And when you think about the move in oil services, OIH, up 50% in a month. XLE, okay, large integrators, up 30% in a month. On a relative basis, I think that something is kind of out of whack here, and crude actually feels like the next move lower. I know, Guy, we were looking at the chart yesterday. It looked like it wanted to party a little bit. Not partying today. No. <laughs> but I, to me, first off, I, I say this to Porter a lot, probably once a week. If I could just get crude to stay between 85 and 95 mm-hmm. bucks a barrel, I'd be as happy as can be. And so what that is saying to me, these companies are producing massive cash flows at those levels. And so as a result, so yes, crude moves up and down. These stocks move up and down. When they report, people are like, wow. And they just keep increasing dividends. They keep increasing share buybacks. So on the other hand, this SPR release in China are two major catalysts. So on the one hand, yesterday, we were laughing at ourselves and saying, if Powell does pivot or soften or whatever, our longs are going to go ballistic because not only we own those, we also sadly own gold and silver, which is sort of almost a hedge against our shorts in some way. And those would have went ballistic as well, but it didn't happen. And oil continues, to, these names continue to go up because to me, it feels like right now you're just having fun rotation. But yes, I agree with you. The fundamentals, if we get an SPR release and if we get China, that can more than make up for the drop in aggregate demand that would happen for a recession. Let me say something for people out there. That do, so I worked with Porter and Vinny and Steve, three of the smartest people I've ever worked with collectively, honestly. So these are guys that have now taken their brains out of the financial services sector, not all of it, but they still, fo- they still focus on it and have applied it to energy. So for people out there, this is not macro trading necessarily. It's bottom up with a little macro thrown in. So I just feel like I need to tell people, this is not like a, not a well thought out. And whatever happens, happens to their performance. Yes, 
Vinny mentioned they know when the RSIs are, are too high. You can feel it when you get the call of the person that never bought energy says, I finally bought Exxon, I'm in. You should Then you turn around and sell everything. There's a behavioral finance. But just for people that are listening out there, the, from a balance sheet perspective, from an income state perspective, this is not like a dart throwing contest. This is counting cards. So I just wanted to add that. But guys, let me ask you a question. Have you seen any weird option activity in the in the energy space at all? Like anything? Not Nothing out of the ordinary, right? Not like Tesla, no. No, not like Tesla. But I was looking in the healthcare. Let's shift to the healthcare sector for a second. So Johnson & Johnson bought Abiomed, because it's not pronounced a biomed, because I got corrected on that. It's Abiomed. Do you know that Unusual Whales gets all this stuff? That on October 21st, Dan, you're going to love this. Someone bought 750 310 calls. The stock was 260 for $1.50. They spent $100,000 for those people playing the home game out there. This thing gets announced this deal 10 days later, guy makes $5 million. First of all, where's Barry Diller on Activision and Von Furstenberg and all those people? Because I'm still obsessed with that whole thing. How hard is it? I know I'm going to get Vinny going here. That's pretty easy to find who the person is that did that. The open interest was seven on that option line. Okay, someone made $5 million. Where in the hell are the regulators and the police in this market? Because that is one of the most obscene things. Sorry, I had to get it off my chest. Told him on Sequidor. Doesn't mean anything. I just wanted to shift to healthcare. Vinny. That was fabulous, by the way, Danny. Danny, you know that if we were working at the SEC, if we saw that, the first thing we would do is call up, who's the broker that traded it? I'm going to pick on them. It might not be them. Say it's Goldman Sachs. And we would say, get DJ Del Sol on the line right now. <laughs> right? And then we would say, you give me that yeah. trade ticket. And if you don't, I'm going to make your life living hell in a week. And you know I can. And so I would want to know who did it. They know. The broker dealers know who did it. So the problem we have with our SEC is they don't do that. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of problems with the SEC. Before we go to break, and we will come back with these three guys, Dan is at a trade, and I happen to agree with this trade. The dollar and interest rates are such a huge component of what we talk about day-to-day basis. You know, the dollar has been lower left to upper right. It's given a little back, but it's back on its horse. Interest rates are still, I would submit, the bond market is still broken. When you see a 17 basis point move in two-year yields in the course of about 15 or so minutes, that's broken to me. But Dan, maybe update on the trade, because I happen to agree with your premise. I think, again, we are in a secular bull market for the dollar with trading opportunities to the downside along the way. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, and I think you guys would have all kind of agreed with this. I mean, if we were just to have a little bit of a pause in the ultra hawkish rhetoric, you would have seen the dollar and you would have seen yields come in a little bit. And so I've just kind of been positioning that. I've been actually using options in the ETF that tracks the US dollar index. That's a UUP. I'm defining my risk. And on the flip side of that, calls in the GOVT, bullish GOVT, the treasury ETF that means you're bearish on on yields. But again, these are not huge trades. I am no macro mind. I like to think in terms of reversion. And when you have steep uptrends, which is what we have in the US dollar index and what we have in treasury yields, I like to play for a test of those trends. And if there's one fundamental reason for them to break, they will overshoot to the downside and to use leverage and to find your risk to do it. That's kind of how I spray those bets. But when I'm looking to average into something, like I just talked about in some of these mega cap techs, I start buying a quarter of a position, add a little more. So there's just two different strategies. I'm wrong on the options one, and those go poof sooner or later. The, the ones on the equity markets, you got to stick around with or you got to use defined stock. Over the last 10, 15 or so years, the Boston Red Sox have had years where they win the World Series. They're the best team in Major League Baseball. And then the subsequent year, they're one of the shittiest teams 
in Major League Baseball. Now, I'm sure a lot of you folks are saying, why is Guy Adami, an ardent Yankee fan, bringing up the Boston Red Sox? And that's a good question. The reason why is because last year, Danny Moses was the World Series winning Boston Red Sox. You could not lose in his picks in the league where they play for pay. This year, that same Danny Moses, he hasn't changed, is an extraordinarily pedestrian, and I would submit embarrassing 12 and 11. So before we go to break, Danny, you are now in week, I believe, is it nine in the NFL? I mean, it's crazy how quickly it goes by. Please give us your picks in this league where the men that play get paid to do it. All right. So first thing, I'm going to lose. So Dan came into this overall season between the gold bet last year and our and everything else in football down 15,000. I'm going to lose 5,000. I don't think the Fed's cutting nope. in the meeting in 40 days. So, so I'm Dan, down there's 10 your five. Year, we are yeah. now back to 10. Okay. However, Dan just had a guest on this guy, this stud, Jake Wood from Team Rubicon. Incredible, incredible organization, right? Jake played offensive line at Wisconsin. He was a Marine sniper badass. And I want to support this, Dan. So I would ask you, let's close it out. Yep. Take my 10 grand yep. and donate it to Team Rubicon if you would do that. For done. Me. Done and done. All right. So real quickly on Team Rubicon, this is an organization. Jake was a Marine sniper, left in 09 after a couple tours overseas, started Team Rubicon, basically recruiting vets, deploying them to disaster areas, training them. It's a great organization. He was the CEO of that company. He was on OK Computer. You're going to be able to listen to that next week. So check it out. And Risk Social Media will be making a $10,000 donation and I'm going to be topping that thing up here. So thanks, Danny. We are, the slates are clean there. Yep. Slates are clean. All right. So three picks this week. I will keep shorting Tampa Bay till I'm booing the face. Long Giselle, short Brady, by the way. I take the Rams plus two and a half in Tampa. Just give me the Rams. I don't care. I don't think Tampa can beat anybody at this point. Tennessee getting 12 and a half at Kansas City. I think they play them tight with or without Tannehill. I know they got some injuries on Tennessee. I take Tennessee plus 12 and a half. In Baltimore, Roquan Smith, University of Georgia, badass now, traded from the Bears. I think New Orleans has been borrowed time here, outperforming, outkicking their coverage, so to speak. I like Baltimore minus three there. But guys, it is Breeders' Cup weekend. It is the Breeders' Cup Classic. There's a lot of races over the course of Friday and Saturday. It's being run at Keeneland. It's a mile and a quarter. The difference, remember, Breeders' Cup and all the things you hear about in the Derby and Preakness and Belmont is you have to be three years old to run in those three. This one, you can be as old as you want to be. So there's a couple four-year-olds in this race that obviously are the heavy favorites. I won't take up too much time on this. I do not like betting horses that are what we call three to five. I'm not betting $50 on a horse to win 30. However, you can't ignore this flight line. And the last time this trainer, Sadler, had a horse like this, it was like four or five years ago in the Breeders' Cup, he lost. It's kind of, this horse has won its last five races by cumulatively 63 lengths. This is unheard of, right? So he's coming in hot three to five. So he's the four horse. Now hear me out. There's another horse called Life is Good run by Arad Ortiz. It won last year's Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile. It's had a great season. I think they're going to be in the money. That's the two horse. And the six horse, which I think has a shot to win, which is five to one, is Epicenter. Came in second in the Derby, second in the Preakness. I believe won the Travers, right? Has come in and won the Travers. So I would do the two, four, six in a trifecta box and hope that the two or six comes on top of the four. I'd put it in exacta box also. That's all the gambling stuff I have for you guys. All right. Old as you want to be, that will be the... Tagline of Guy Adami's memoir. Thank you for that, Danny. All right, when we come back, stick around. You guys asked for it. You're going to get it. What are we doing with Danny Moses, Vinny, and Porter? 
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On the Tape with my boys, Porter and Vinny. What are we doing? Segment time. Obviously, we've covered a lot of stuff in part one. We also have some questions that we got off of Twitter that Amanda Diaz has compiled. We can go through those as well. But guys, I know we covered a lot of the energy stuff. We covered the Fed here. What are we doing? I would like to start, obviously, with what happened this this week when I felt it was back to the old times where I begged you guys to look at something right in your wheelhouse called Credit Acceptance Corp, which you guys have obviously been short from time to time, who basically hired a chief technology officer kind of out of nowhere. They don't really add a lot of people. The day before that they reported their earnings, this is a, a subprime auto lender, obviously, that's out there. And it reminded me of just a couple of weeks back on Ally Financial, where they fired the CFO, the CFO resigned the day before, felt something bad was coming. But it was really funny to walk through with you guys, because it was like we were back on the desk and I was riding the train in and I'm like, hey, guys, did you see this CTO get hired? Why would a technology guy be coming in? Maybe they're having problems with collections. Maybe they want to streamline. So Porter's like, yeah, yeah, I love it. And then Vinny's like, yeah, but, you know, we always we get our face ripped off every time we short it. Let's walk through that because you did short a little bit of it. By the way, I'm not taking credit for the trade. I'm just saying that you was should. exactly a microcosm of everything that's happened. But yeah. You could take credit for it. But Vinny and I had to laugh when the thesis for shorting it was that they hired a new CTO. <laughs> right. No, I know. You got, but it was so out of left field. When you, I just look for things like red flags. So we, had the, we used to have the red flag in our office, right, where we would throw it against the wall, just like they do in the NFL. When you, and I, that was a red flag moment. Could have been wrong. Maybe it has nothing to do with it, but I think what eventually is they'll start, they were using technology now because they grew like crazy in the quarter and they had a massive uptick in delinquencies, massive, right? On a scale of any 80 to $90 million more reserve than people thought that they were going to take. So anyway, just to extrapolate that a little bit into the economy, the people that are getting hammered are going to keep getting hammered. They don't have the ability to offset all this inflation. So I know that's kind of part of the theme, but just extract that for a second and apply that not in the energy sector per se, uh, but just in general to kind of what we're seeing out there. One of the things we were talking about the last two days, you hear the term dollar wrecking ball, dollar wrecking ball. And I don't want to get into that. For us specifically in what we're talking about in auto finance, the two-year treasury is the wrecking ball 
of all things lending in specialty finance. And the reason being is most of those loans are funded in some form of another in the securitization market off the two-year treasury. So you've just had a 400 pip increase in your cost of funding. And so therefore, you have to increase the coupon or the loan rate that you're charging to the borrower. That causes massive distortions, not just in the credit profile of what you just recently originated, and probably more acutely in your incremental origination volume. So what that leads for us to believe is that auto origination volume going forward over the next six to nine months is going to suck. So when you see a CACC growing like that, you get a little nervous. You get very nervous. Yeah, Vinny, you've always said when you outgrow GDP or something like that within that sector, you're always obviously going to have issues. So I don't know, Porter, if you have any thoughts on that, you can move past it. But you know, in general, I think when Powell said yesterday how he doesn't believe that short-term rates, I don't know what he was talking about, whether it was Fed funds or whatever, have an impact on the consumer prime rate and so for whatever you want to use is directly impacted by what he does. And that has a direct impact on people that are carrying balances of any kind, right? Whatever that might be. No, I totally agree. I mean, this is, it all acts with the lag. And this is why we're so bearish on housing. You know, we're not, we're not short any home builders per se, but it just, I think it's going to last a lot longer than people think it is. People forget that home building didn't collapse and rip right back. It took three plus years for existing home sales to pick back up. And so the problem is some of this stuff is just going to last a lot longer. And remember in 08 to 2012, that's with the rate cuts. And so we have the reverse right now. We have all these rate hikes. And so whether it's mortgages, whether it's auto loans, whether it's credit cards, the delinquencies are going to show up with time. And the activity is going to be so much slower than people think it is. It's just so bad. I have a hard time getting bullish on the economy and on stocks because housing hasn't even come close to bottoming yet. And Vin and I were laughing about, read all these newsletter writers and total non sequitur here, by the way. I was talking about earlier how I was getting so mad at stuff. And one newsletter wrote, yeah, there's a bubble in bearishness sentiment. And it drove me crazy because my point is that everyone's bullish. The whole market's rigged to go up. And yes, are a few hedge funds more negative than they were before? But like, I don't know. It's just people forget what despair looks like when it was like, oh, my house, what do I do with it? Just sell it. I can't take anymore. Right. You know? And so I think we're going to get to that point. It just, again, takes time. And I think the one thing that is different, every cycle is different, but when you have quantitative tightening going on and you have an eight to $9 trillion balance sheet and Pal again reinforces how he's going to keep running it off and how proud he was to keep running it off. I mean, that is such a headwind in and outside of inflation, even inflation moderating, because you're not going to get relief in the mortgage-backed security market. You're not going to get relief in Treasury. As a matter of fact, any type of demand for Treasury, you would think that the Fed would take the opportunity just to sell into it. So for people that understand when we started the fund coming out of the financial crisis and then kind of regrouping in 2012, we were still fighting the remnants of QE1, QE2. QE3 that's happening, and it really distorted the markets. The inability to be a fundamental bottom-up analyst, right, or portfolio manager became so hard, and we were focused on one sector, unfortunately, and it was the most manipulated sector in the world. So, you know, I'll say it again. If you take all those tools and that practice and apply, you can apply that to any sector. So while it's painful right now for a lot of people, to me, it's refreshing in a way where actually fundamentals are mattering. And Porter, to the point you made in part one, and I know Vinny feels this way, buying stocks with increasing earnings and selling or shorting stocks with decreasing earnings tends to be kind of a no-brainer. And the buy the effing dip mentality is basically gone. 
and the selling of the effing rally in crappy names is here. So again, kind of sentiment wise, you feel like you're finally getting your shot and your guys' performance obviously echoes that, but yeah. Can I do a breaking news here? I've been sure. asking for you because I had a feeling we might get lock limit news right now. A couple of our shorts just happened to come across the tape here. Thursday Night Dirties? Thursday Night Dirty. Carvana oh, is down God. a buck from, thir- from 14 to 13. Obviously, this stock is not a big position for us because we were shorted at 300. Yep. Coinbase just looks like it threw up all over itself. You know what's crazy about it? So yesterday or the day before... The JP Morgan analyst, great call, had an underweight, I think, on Carvana. I always see what a stock does, and I look for the news. Carvana was up like, I don't know, 14 to 16 or 13 to 15. It was up over 10%. I'm like, why is it up? JP Morgan analyst upgrades to neutral. I have no problem with that victory lap. But that was like those opportunities in stocks that are in those continuous unwind. Robinhood, great. Good quarter, guys. I mean, come on, down 85% for you. You have to get out of that crap because fundamentally those companies, right, guys? I mean, they don't have anywhere really to go. So I've been unable to look at the news at the moment, but I will. So. And then the third company that we've been short for a while is Open Door Technologies, which I on Twitter, it was like a 10 or 11 bucks. And I said, well, I'll buy it at three bucks, which were tangible book is or under that. Well, stock just reported it's $2. Open the point. door Open and the walk door. right out. So yeah, exactly. it's funny. That's why... Yesterday was so important to a portion of our portfolio on the short side, which was when Powell closed the door on any form of near-term dovishness or the way I think about it, a break in the short-term funding, the two-year treasury and the like, it sealed the deal for all these quote-unquote shit coasts that probably over the next six to nine months, because of what he did, most of these things are going to go BK. A lot of them are. And so as a result, not that we have a big position in them anymore, Danny, but it's enough where we like to pay attention and there's a bit of schadenfreude there as well in that we felt very comfortable staying short these names because we know that the fundamentals, because so much of them are predicated on the two-year treasury and access to funding and funding's really tight, that we're going to see them pretty much ride to zero, a lot of them. I mean, another one of our shorts reported this morning, Wayfair, we've been short from much higher, but they burnt $500 million this quarter and a billion dollars in the first three quarters of the year. I just don't know how much longer you can survive. And you go back to how Vinny and I and and Danny invest is that we came from financial services guys. The only thing that matters is essentially the balance sheet. Revenues are totally irrelevant item. And so naturally, the first thing we do, we look at a company, we look at the balance sheet. And a lot of these companies, the balance sheets are horrendous. Another one, Peloton reported today. I mean, these I just don't know how they can survive. Wayfair, which reported this morning, their cost of debt is still like under 1% because they have all these converts out. So they're losing all this money at essentially 0%. And they're going to have to take that out at some point and refinance it at some point, right? We talk about that, right? These business models, if your business model didn't work in the greatest time period ever, it's never going to work. And so again, people out there that try to try to find a bottom, don't try to find a bottom in companies that weren't unable to basically make money during the greatest time period ever, or are going to face some balance sheet issues going forward because it's, it's really not going to work. So, all right, guys, let's move forward. So I think Amanda had some questions for us from the uh, Twitter studio audience. All right. So here's some question guys from Harry at drunk bowler, eight, five, seven. Thoughts on REITs. I've been adding small to my position on ABR during the dips. Multi-home rentals is their moneymaker, plus a nice dividend. What do you think? Any comments there? Any thoughts? I think it's a bit early. I think it's a bit early. Next question from Baseman at Baseman206. Break down, go ahead and give it to me, the thesis for BTU, CEIX, 
and talk to Seawolf book, which we basically did in part one. I need to know. I need to know. So BTU had their quarter report. It was very good. Stock was up. I know big this morning. It sold off a little bit into the bell. Thoughts there, boys? So BTU is our largest position. It's coal company. And in general, it's a very simple thesis on why we own it. It's extremely cheap. Coal is needed. And it trades between one to two times EBITDA, depending on the numbers in your estimates. Today, they reported great numbers. It should have been our aircraft carrier day. Then unfortunately, the reason why it traded down was during the call, they're rumored to be buying an Australian coal company, Coronado. And when asked directly, they did not directly say that they weren't going to buy it. So the stock traded down. We did nothing with the stock. We still like it. It is about to release billions of cash to shareholders in some form of another. Dividend, share buyback. We're just waiting on them to pay down debt and to redo their surety agreement. So we're big fans. We own a lot of coal companies. We own Consol, we own AMR, we own two or three Australian coal producers, which honestly are in a fantastic situation. All these companies are over 50% free cash flow yields. And there's about 17 people on planet Earth that own them. All right. So this next question, I'll take a shot at also. You guys can chime in. Blur Isaac Newton, great name, by the way. What does the market look like if we have 10-year rates bouncing around 4% for the next several years? So I'll take a shot at that. So we basically have been bouncing around for the last several months, right? Between 3.7 and 4.3, whatever, bouncing. If you told me we would hover around 4%, I would say somehow we managed to pull out a soft landing because I believe rates are going to head much lower over time. Probably the best case scenario if you told me we were able to actually hold 4% and not move extremely higher because people worried about our ability to pay our debts as a country or that things went so far off of a cliff that there was just a massive flight to quality and we were just started printing money to Vinny's point in QE fashion and buying back these bonds. That's my take on it, guys. What's your guys' take if we hang around the 4% level? I would be incrementally more bullish if you saw a giant flight to safety and yields go down. So I'd be more bullish on the world. (laughs) The problem with that is that a giant flight to safety probably means out of the equity market into the bond market. And so stocks, I I don't know that it would are going to do so well in that environment. That's just, that's my two cents. And my two cents is if we stay north of 4% across the entire yield curve, I just think we're going to have a slower economy. So eventually the Fed's going to have to do something. That's fair. All right. Last thing, boys, because this was addressed on, someone asked us this on Twitter a while ago, and I said we would address it. So a few things that fact from fiction or embellishment in the movie, a couple things in Porter I found there's on YouTube now, there's scenes that were deleted from the big short that never made it. One was a scene where you rescue me from a panic attack. Another was when I do a walk-on part. Were you impressed by acting skill? Yeah. And, and then the rest of it was bail because he's the best actor in the world. But yeah, so we had some stuff. And so some stuff was real. Some stuff was cut. All right. So let's say we were not chased by an alligator in a pool. Correct, Porter? That's correct. However, their alligators were definitely lurking around. Oh, yeah. We were saying. Okay. Second, Vinny, you and I were the ones that went down to Moody's. Obviously, in that conference in Orlando, the first one, the kind of the fixed income before the big ABS conference in Vegas, where Moody's told us that they don't have a model which shows down home prices and you and I got up and walked away. Is that, is that accurate? That is accurate. Vinny, in the book, it portrays me as how you're going to F me. And then your actor was better than my actor in the movie. Jeremy by Strong. Can't, by, yeah, by a lot. Sorry, Rafe. I know you're not listening, so that's fine. But how you going to F me was me, but he was a better actor. He took that role. So you got very angry in the movie. 
And then why am I the one looking for Nobu or restaurants? Is that true? Was that really happening all the time? Because I don't remember. Is that, would you say that was accurate? Because I think, and I love him as a director, but I think Adam McKay rightfully portrayed you as sort of the social chair of us. And then for yeah. some reason concluded that you were the optimist. And so therefore, I don't know. You were the one trying us to get out, so you became the food critic. Or, or I, <laughs> I think that that was a mischaracterization. That was that was horrible, to be quite honest. I think the funniest part uh, was when we went to see the oh. initial, the first screening of it. We went to like HBO's. Oh, I know or, I don't going. know whose whose studio it was. We we had this private screening of the movie, <laughs> and we're going through it, and all of a sudden pops up Danny's part, which they show he, that he has an enlarged testicle. Yeah. Which he, of course, he doesn't. But Danny goes, "Oh my God, what? <laughs> no, you can't do that!" They uh, tilted so, him the so entire pre-screen. Tilted him completely. And so we we finish it, and Danny can't even think about how the movie went. He just goes, he's like, "I epididymis. can't believe they, there, they took a video and it, they showed an epididymis. And I'll tell you why it happened. I'm going to tell him what I did to you because when I found out that it got, I didn't know it was going to end up the movie and what I did to you, Porter. I think I told you so. When Adam McKay came in the office one day, I had gotten a vasectomy years ago and I felt something and I went to check it out and it was nothing. But while I was out, he decided to extrapolate that into, I have a third testicle or whatever. But what I did to you when I found out that that's the information you relayed, whether or not that I knew they would end up in the movie, it doesn't matter. So Vinny knows. So Porter's obsessed with, he hates when people wear loafers with no socks. He hates it. It's like a, a prep school no-no, whatever it might be. So we made clear to tell his character, and I made clear to tell Adam McKay, I go, whatever you do, when Porter's guy is playing him, what's his name again? Porter, your boy? Who's that? Who's Hamish your, Linklater. Hamish Linklater. I go, he can't ever wear socks. And he's got to pull his pants up a little bit so they flood. He likes to wear like high pants. So if you guys see in the movie, whenever you'll see Porter's, or you'll see Hamish's ankles and you see his pants pulled up because I got you back when I thought there was a chance that my testicle would make it onto the screen. So H Hamish wore like those, like the, like the millennials wear like the tight yeah. pants and the, and the four inch floods. Like I, I was wearing those all, uh, exactly. It was John Brian flood well, they, they tried to make me and you guys did a great job of making sure that the Blackberry was locked to <laughs> hitch to my belt. Oh, the Blackberry, the professor. And, 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 the and they professor. wanted to Queens me up and put like gold chains on me. I'm like, dude, I don't dress like that, but, but I got to tell you, you, and I will say, you do chew gum, Vinny. Oh, completely. But not to the way that Jeremy Strong chewed that gum. I mean, it was unbelievable. Well, do you remember that you day when they came in? And so yeah. you guys were hanging out. My guy never came in. So yeah, but I met him on set. But anyway, yeah, keep going. so they were in our office and we're working. They could do your normal work day. So I was working. I forgot somebody reported. And I'm like, really got one of those angry face days on and I'm chewing gum. I'm getting angry. I feel Jeremy's eyes like going through me. And at one point I said, Jeremy, stop staring at me. Stop. Right? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. Vinny, I have to. He goes, I have to I have to know every single move. This is why he's such a great actor. He goes, I need to know every single move, everything you do, so that I could get you down pat for the role. So that's why he have it. So I guess that day I was chewing gum like a madman. Well, my guy, we'll call Rafe Spall, we were down in New Orleans. We go out to dinner after we're on set all day. Porter wasn't at this dinner. I think it was Vinny and I, my wife, Allison, of the people. And Rafe Spall's wife is Elise de Troyes, beautiful. She was in a couple Bond movies, model, whatever, and we're all sitting there. And the, for the first time ever, Rafe acknowledges my presence, meaning, so I just came off of another movie. Tell me what it's like to be you. And I said, well, I go, maybe we should swap for a little while and you'll get to know me, I'll get to know you. My wife will tell you things about me and it'll be fair. 
And my wife was laughing. Benny was sitting there. My wife was laughing her ass off. But then Rafe's wife says, I don't think you'd like it so much. I'm very pregnant. I go, you're very pregnant? I go, you couldn't even tell that she was pregnant. But anyway, there was some great fun on the set and it was great fun just to do it with you guys. But there's plenty more stories where that came from, but we can save it for the next, what are we doing and all that. But guys, I can't thank you enough for all the time you guys spend coming on here. It's more fun than ever that this is an excuse for us to reconvene and talk again. So keep crushing it. And I know we'll have you guys on back soon because we are going to make a, what are we doing a much more regular thing, as you guys know. The only thing I wish was that Danny got to see the scrolling of the N.I. Warren as we reported. uh, Nothing better than uh, Danny in the office on N.I. Warren. Nothing. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.